Thank you, Millard. Good morning, my church family. Missed you the last two Sundays. You probably didn't miss me, didn't even notice I was gone, but that's okay. No, I'm not looking for that. So, Anyway, it's really good to be back with everybody. Uh, I do miss you, even though we were in a great place. I do miss you when we're gone, and it's really wonderful to be back with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to ask you a question as we begin this morning. Have any of you ever read, it's an online uh, magazine, The Onion? The Onion? You know what it is? Um, it's it's an online fake news site, intentionally fake and proud of it. Uh, it was fake news long before fake news became a thing that we hear about every day. Actually, uh, if you like The Onion, you'll like another one that I discovered a couple years ago called The Babylon Bee. Has anybody seen that? It's just like The Onion, except it's for Christians, and it's pretty, some pretty funny stuff. But Anyway, I want to read a brief story from The Onion that relates to our theme this morning. There's this story, continuously doing laundry, cooking, or vacuuming in her family's rented beach cottage this week. Area mom, Catherine Yardley, has spent a much-needed vacation performing all her usual household chores while in closer proximity to the ocean, sources confirmed. Isn't it nice just to get away for a while and relax by the water, Yardley said as she wiped down the kitchen counter and then took out the garbage, tasks she would normally perform at a distance of 200 miles from the beach instead of 50 feet. I just love that I can be scrubbing the bathroom, look out the window, and see the tide coming in. We should do this every year. At press time, Yardley was reportedly busy preparing a meal identical to what she would have made back home, except that she planned to serve it on paper plates. I know that's how some of the moms feel on vacation. I see a lot of heads. Amen to that. There's something about vacations <clears throat> that we seem to crave, we need, in a very real way. Some of us may feel like this at the end of a vacation. After being off work for so long, I forgot what it is that I pretend to do around here. <laughs> Others may feel like this. Sorry, your post-vacation workload has completely negated all the benefits of your vacation. That's called vacation letdown. Or this one, vacation's over. Please accept my sincerest condolences on the inevitable end of your ability to avoid reality. We do that sometimes on vacation, don't we? Without asking for a show of hands, I want you to think about this for a minute. How many of you look forward most of the year to a week or two of vacation? 50 weeks of anticipation. Or maybe it's something else you always look forward to. Maybe it's not vacation. You know what? The truth is we're just anxious sometimes for a break. A break from what Bruce Clutter once called in a sermon, the dailiness of life. And for most part, that's okay. That's okay. We were actually made to need Sabbath. Weekly and longer ones periodically, such as once or twice a year, we're made to need that. It's part of the cycle that the Lord gave us. So it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong in wanting or even needing a break. But then there's life. And life gets in the way, doesn't it? Life happens. And life can be hard. Harder for some of us than it is for others. There are seasons that are more difficult for us than for others. And life is where we live. We don't live on vacation. It makes you wonder sometimes what's enough. Is a week or two of vacation enough to satisfy this need that we have? This need for change, this need for respite, for a break. Is it enough? 
I really wonder, is a month, is two months, what's enough for me? And not just when it comes to rest, but when it comes to the things in life that satisfy me. Vacations are just an example this morning of our desire for enoughness. That's a word that I just made up. I don't think you'll find it in the dictionary. This is a theme that actually I haven't been able to escape as I prayed about this morning's message, even when I was on my vacation, which finished just over a week ago. It's been percolating in my spirit for some weeks now as I anticipated our time in Colorado and enjoyed the refreshing and the renewal that it brought. And then I experienced what feels like an almost inevitable thing, that vacation letdown that comes when you're heading home. Huh? Anybody relate to that at all? After all, Barb and I had a week of this, okay? This was the view from our deck of the house where we stayed. And then last Sunday, when you were sitting here in the Sunday service, listening to Jim Grinnell preach his great message on the four wills of God, we had several hours of this as we drove through the panhandle on the way home. You go from the one to the other, right? It's a literal coming down off the mountaintops into the valley of life. So I've pondered this even before vacation again. What's enough? What's enough? And is a vacation really meant to satisfy, to fortify us for the next many weeks or months or however long it is until that next vacation? Or is there something more? Is there a better way to experience this life, to find satisfaction, to find sufficiency, even joy, than living from wonderful and refreshing experience to the next wonderful and and refreshing experience? Or is there a better way than just escaping the difficult circumstances in our lives in other ways? Because again, we don't live on vacation. We don't live on the mountaintop. I guess some people do. But in an emotional and spiritual sense, we live in the valley, even if you live in the mountains. What if things never change? What if things take a long time to change to what we would consider to be better circumstances in our lives? Well, I believe this morning, and this is what we're going to look at, I believe that the Word tells us that there is a better way to live than just looking forward to the next vacation or the solution to whatever our problem is, that ongoing problem that we have in our lives. And this is something I want to grow in, and I believe that we all need to grow in. We read in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is a psalm of Asaph. Now Asaph was able to say there is nothing There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Really? Really? Nothing? There's nothing? Not a Colorado vacation? Not a sickness-free life? Not more leisure? Not more stuff? Not deliverance from his enemies? Well, what he's doing here is he's making a comparison. He's saying that while there may be other good things, and remember that all truly good things are God things. They're from God. Only God himself truly 
satisfies. That's the gist of what Asaph is saying here. Only God himself truly satisfies. Only God is truly enough for me and for you. If I set anything else beside God and compare, nothing else measures up to having him, having a relationship with him, having his love, having his grace at work in my life, his mercies that endure forever. Nothing else can measure up because we were made for him. In fact, the good things that we do enjoy in this life, and they are, as we noted, they are from God. The good things we enjoy in this life, the genuinely, literally good things are from God. But they were never meant to satisfy in and of themselves. These good things are always, always meant to point us not to the gift of these good things themselves, but to the giver of these good things. When I enjoy the beauty of a mountain vista, it points me to the creator of that vista. I can't tell you how many times Barb said on our vacation, I feel like I'm seeing God's paintings, God's art, as we drove around and saw a new scene. Every time, she probably said it a half dozen times, and it's true, folks. It's true. It's meant to point us to the creator. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what Asaph wrote in this psalm, but can I say that? Can I say that legitimately, really, and be honest with myself? Well, maybe sometimes, but not as often as I want to be able to really say that and really embrace that reality in my own life. I want to be able to say that there is nothing on earth I desire besides Him. Whether things are good or bad in my life, I want to say the same thing. Whether I'm in the mountains, whether I'm on vacation or not, I do desire other things. I desire good things and things that aren't necessarily wrong or that I shouldn't want to desire. I desire, for example, to see you, my church family, my brothers and sisters in Christ, grow into faithful servants of the King of Kings. That's a godly desire, and it's a good desire. I desire to see many loved ones in my biological family know him and follow him wholeheartedly. That's a good desire. That's a godly desire. I desire to see my ORU Golden Eagles finally have a good basketball team again. Now, that's kind of a neutral desire. I don't know if it's a godly desire, but it's okay to want that. It's okay. So there are things that are good to want. There are things that are even biblical to want, like wanting to see people saved. And there are lots of neutral desires that aren't wrong. They're not necessarily good or bad. They just are. And that's okay too. And of course, we don't even really need to mention this, but I will just briefly. There may be evil desires we have too. And we don't need to spend any time at all looking at how those compare to the satisfaction of knowing God because they just don't. They just don't. I want to spend a few minutes now looking at the larger context of Asaph's psalm here. Let's go back to verse 21 of this passage from Psalm 73 and read through 26, which we read earlier. Asaph writes, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, folks, I believe that Asaph was like me. I think he was like us. He says he was ignorant. Sorry, but that's us. He says he was like a beast. He said his soul was embittered. What do beasts do when they're unhappy? They growl, don't they? What do I sometimes do when I'm not happy, I'm not satisfied with something in my life? I growl too. Ask Barb. Asaph acknowledges that his soul was embittered. He wasn't happy about his circumstances. He even admits earlier in this psalm that he was jealous of the wicked because they didn't seem to deal with the same kinds of problems that he had. We go back to Psalm 73, go uh, earlier in the chapter, verse, beginning with verse 2. He says, Asaph still writing here, he says, As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. The wicked and the prosperous have more vacations than we do, don't they? Isn't that true? They also have nicer vacations than we do. They own homes in the mountains with views that I can only rent. The burdens common to most of us include finding just a little free time for ourselves, finding enough money to do the things we want to do, let alone things that we need to do. Now, Asaph's perspective on the prosperous is that they have everything they want, not just the things they need. And he, in a very honest moment, Asaph admitted that he was envious of this. He admitted his envy. He saw something they had, he saw something he didn't, and he wanted it. He wanted it. Later in the psalm, Asaph got a little more perspective. If you're familiar with this psalm, he began to get a little more perspective about these people that he admitted envying. In verses 16 through 18, of Psalm 73. He said, when I tried to understand all this, okay, when I tried to understand how come the wicked have all this good stuff and I don't? How come they don't have any problems? He said, it was oppressive to me when I tried to understand this. And then in verse 17, he says, till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. So it wasn't until Asaph got God's perspective that he could make the amazing statement that is our primary text this morning that we read at the beginning. This is the background for that amazing statement, that declaration that I so much want to be able to say with my whole heart. Again, I will read it from Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We see this theme throughout the scriptures. Both the New Testament and the Old Testament. We see what Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things 
and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Like Asaph, here's Paul. He's comparing good, better, and best. The worth of knowing Christ, Paul writes, is surpassing. That means it's better than anything else. In fact, it's the best thing. It's meant to be enough. It's meant to be enough for me. It's meant to be enough for you. It's meant to fully satisfy any need that we would have. We read in another psalm, Psalm 16, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. We have all kinds of good things in our lives. Most of us do. But can we say that? I have no good apart from you. Again, we're talking about a comparison. The psalmist is making a comparison. Compared to God, nothing else measures up, even the good things, even those things that we would recognize are good things, even godly things. And again, all good comes from him to begin with anyway. Scripture makes it clear that all good things are a gift from God. Of course, the classic verse for this is James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above. We read in John 3.27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. And 1 Corinthians 4.7 says this, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So Everything we have, every gift we have is a received gift. I mean, that's the very definition of a gift, isn't it? It's something that is given to you. It's not something you can earn or work up. It's received from God. So in a very real sense, I didn't earn the money all by myself to rent the house with the view of the mountains that we enjoyed on our vacation. God provided the job so that I could earn the income, the means. It's all from him, folks. It's all from him. So how can I be satisfied in his gifts alone without being satisfied in him? We always seem to put the cart before the horse. When we seek and we find satisfaction in the gifts that we enjoy rather than in the giver of those gifts. This is something that we read in scripture that King Solomon discovered. Solomon was a wise and wealthy man and he had everything. Solomon sought satisfaction in all the things that he had, in wine, in projects, in gardens, in music, in lots of women, in power, and in wealth. And he said in Ecclesiastes, thinking about these things, in verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. So by the world standards, Solomon had it all. He had everything he wanted. He had everything he needed. And yet he started the book by writing in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Some versions say vanity. Some say futility. The idea is empty. All these things, and he goes on throughout Ecclesiastes, all the things that he had, all these things are empty. It's fleeting. It's empty. It doesn't last. It doesn't fulfill. Ultimately, it's not satisfying. It's not enough. Imagine that. You have everything, and it's not enough. He refused his heart no pleasure, but it wasn't enough. 
Can you imagine that? Most of us can't because we don't have everything, right? But Solomon could. Let me give you a modern day example. Listen to the story of Tom Brady. Sports fans know that this guy seems to have it all. He's the Solomon of the NFL. He's an all-pro quarterback. He's a likely Hall of Famer. He's married to a supermodel. He's won five Super Bowls, more than any other quarterback. He has a $20 million home in California that has a moat around it. But he's discovered the same thing that Solomon did. This is a quote he said one th once during an interview. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings? At the time of the interview, he had only won three. And still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what is. I reached my goal. I reached my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, there's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. That's what Tom Brady said. And then the interviewer asked, he said, well, what's the answer? And Brady responded, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Tom Brady and Solomon both discovered that nothing in this life ultimately satisfies. You know why? It's not supposed to. It's not supposed to. Solomon learned that the more that he scratched his desires, the more he itched. The more he had, the more he wanted. But Solomon had one thing that Tom Brady doesn't have, at least yet. He had God-given wisdom. Because even though the book of Ecclesiastes, which is again a book full of Solomon's, Solomon's musings about the meaning of life and the meaning of having it all, the meaning of stuff, starts with the declaration that we read from chapter 1, verse 2, which is meaningless, utterly meaningless. It ends, the book of Ecclesiastes ends with chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. He summed it up. This is the whole duty of man. So satisfaction is found only, only in our relationship with the Lord, only in keeping his commandments. We must remember this, folks. We must remember this. The only thing that was ever meant to satisfy me, the only thing that was ever meant to satisfy you is God himself. Some of what we looked at this morning has explored the difference between having a lot of the world's stuff and how empty that experience of reality really is. We've used the biblical example of Solomon and the current example of Tom Brady. But some of us don't have much of the things that we desire. We certainly don't have a lot of the world's stuff. Some of us don't even have some of the things that are good to have. Or harder still, some of us have circumstances that are incredibly hard in our lives today. And that makes finding satisfaction in God and God alone harder in a different way. Augustine famously opened his book, Confessions, by telling the Lord, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. This summarizes what we're talking about this morning as well. You have made us for yourself. God, you have made us for you. Our heart is restless until it finds... We're not going to find rest. We're not going to find joy, peace, satisfaction in anything but Him. God created us to be satisfied in Him and only in Him. And this is a reality that we must all wrestle 
with. Many of us would prefer to start to wrestle with this from maybe the point where Tom Brady or Solomon are at. We want to prefer to wrestle with this from a point of prosperity, wealth having it all at least by the world standards. Wouldn't it be easier, we might think, to say he's enough, God's enough, when we literally have enough? Well, Solomon says no, because Solomon did. He did have prosperity. He did have wealth. He had all the stuff. He had it all, and he said it's all meaningless apart from God. But instead, most of us have to wrestle with it from a completely different perspective, not having enough, wanting things, even good things, that just aren't happening. In those kinds of circumstances, I think we still have to ask the question, is the Lord enough for me? It's a hard question to ask of ourselves. It's a hard question for me to ask you this morning. You know why? Because I know so much about many of the hardships that all these faces I see in here this morning are facing. I know so much about the pain that you've faced in years past, including what you're going through right now. Some of those hardships are ongoing, and that pain is a present reality, not just for days, not just for weeks, but maybe for months and even years. But I want to ask this question of us this morning anyway, because I believe that I would be doing a disservice to all of us if I didn't ask this question. I ask this because I believe that the Word of God requires that we ask it. Is the Lord enough for you? Is the Lord enough for you? Often it's almost impossible for us to see without the light of Scripture, without understanding God's character as Asaph learned when he went into the house of the Lord, how a continued struggle with no apparent solution is God's way of being good to us. Isn't it? I mean, let's just be honest here this morning. If the things I've begged for in my prayer never, ever change, at least that I can see or maybe in my lifetime, is the Lord enough? Is he enough for me? So it's not just about what we have. It's not just about material things. I really believe we must reconsider this question throughout our lives as life happens to us because life does happen to us. In all of our circumstances, the enemy of our souls will always ask us, did God really say? Did God really say? He's been asking that question of humanity since the fall. Did God really say, my grace is sufficient for you? Did he really say that? And if he did, is he enough? If your life never looks successful, is he enough for you? If you always struggle to pay your bills, is God alone enough for you? If you lose your child, is he enough for you? If you are never healed from physical pain, is he enough for you? If you don't get that job you want, is he enough? If your kids are rebellious, is he enough? If you lose your possessions, is he enough? If you never get married, is he enough? If you're betrayed by a loved one, is he enough? If your child is sick, is he enough for you? If you fail in your work, if you fail in your ministry, is he enough? Now again, these are hard questions for me to stand here before you and ask because as I thought of each of these questions, I can look around this room 
and think of at least one person here who has to answer that question and ask that question in that specific context. Why? Because they're living it or because they have lived it. Now, it's easy for any of us to say that he's enough, but if we're honest, we don't always live like it's true. A writer named Glenna Marshall wrote a great article on this theme, and she wrote this. When I think about the way I've answered the question in the past, most of the time I've lived as though he isn't enough for me. But my poor reactionary behavior doesn't declare what is true about God. Though I have expressed my lack of belief in his sufficiency, it doesn't negate the truth that he still really is enough for me. In fact, he is enough for me in spite of my doubt. And then she asked a very important question. What do we treasure most? What do we treasure most? Do we treasure the answers to our prayers or do we treasure the one to whom we pray? Can we be truly content if all we have is Jesus in our hearts? Let's be careful not to answer that question too quickly because, of course, we want to say yes. I want to say yes. I want to be able to say yes to that question more and more. And Scripture shows us that this enoughness, this contentment, is something we can learn and we can grow in. We remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to us in Philippians 4. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, but I have learned to be content in whatever situation I am. But life's challenges put blinders on us, doesn't it? So that sometimes all we can see is that problem in front of us. I narrow it down and all I can see is I see Spencer and I see John and Megan, but I don't know that there's anybody else here. And what happens is we need the Word of God, we need the Holy Spirit working through each other to help us pull back those blinders and to help us see his love and grace at work. And I look around and I see there's all these brothers and sisters in Christ here. So our troubles are very real. And God knows this. And he is compassionate toward us in this. Yet God is constantly encouraging us in his word to trust him. To trust him. We can trust him because his ongoing care for us is absolutely clear. We can trust him because his word declares that he is absolutely trustworthy. We can trust him because his grace is sufficient for us. We can listen to him. When Jesus speaks of worry in his Sermon on the Mount, and of course worry is a consequence of not being satisfied in Christ and not believing God alone is enough, when Jesus speaks of worry, his answer is very clear and very simple in Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We must trust the faithfulness of God. And a few, ver- a few verses later in Matthew 6, we read this story, very familiar, beginning with verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 
And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you, that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So is our treasure the gift, or is our treasure the giver of those gifts? Is the giver enough without the gifts? What if we don't get the gifts? What if we don't see them? Here in the sermon that Jesus gave, Jesus is essentially saying that when we seek the provision for our wants and needs, apart from seeking the provider himself, it's a kind of idolatry. Can you see that? We can even idolize God's good gifts. Now that may seem like kind of a harsh indictment, But Jesus is asking us where our treasure is. Is it him? Is it his kingdom? Or is it those things that we want or need? Even good, godly things. When we don't have those things we pray for, is Jesus enough for us? Is Jesus enough for me? When God doesn't swoop in to answer our prayers immediately... It's not because he's searching for his sufficiency. If he waits, it's because he's working something good from our waiting. If he prolongs our challenges, our difficulties, even our pain, it isn't because he delights in our suffering, but what he does delight in is cultivating our trust in him. He will always be enough for us, folks. He will always, he is, and will always be enough. Us. The circumstances in our lives, though frustrating and often painful to us, are not the point. The point is where my contentment, my security, and my identity lie. If my circumstances never change, if your circumstances never change, is the Lord enough for you? Scripture is full of declarations of his faithful sufficiency. He has not left us to flounder in our troubles. We fight sometimes these thoughts of his insufficiency by reminding ourselves of the truth of Scripture every day. That's another reason we need to be in the Word, folks. We can't neglect the Word. When we neglect the Word, we neglect his character. We neglect the reality of who he is and what he's done and is doing for us. Scripture tells us God's been faithful in the past. It tells us that he will be faithful today and tomorrow and forever. When those prayers aren't answered in the way or in the time that we hope for, can we trust what his word tells us? His word tells us that his grace is sufficient for me. His grace is sufficient for me. The word tells us that all these things, when we seek first the kingdom of God, All these things will be added to me. And the word tells us that he will make our paths straight. 
So despite what life looks like, despite how hard life is, whatever we have or don't have, is he enough for you? Is he enough for me? Let's consider that now as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for Asaph, Father, who got a perspective adjustment when he thought that the rest of the world had everything and he saw that they were doomed without you. Thank you for Asaph as well, Lord, and for your inspiration of Asaph in writing this psalm that nothing we desire compares with you. Father, help us to internalize that more and more each and every day. Help us, Father, to see that our sufficiency is in you. Help us to see, Father, that as we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, that all these things will be added to us in your time and in your way. And thank you, Father, that as we trust in you, you will make our paths straight. Father, help us to find our sufficiency in you and in you alone, because only you are meant to satisfy us, your creations, your children. In Jesus' name, amen.